The Mojo Radio Show. We scour the planet to find the biggest names in health, creativity, wellness, strategy, brand, performance, management, and more. Turn this up. This is going to be crazy. This is Jason Overcome Redman. Hey, I'm Dave Acosta. Hi, this is Cal Newport, author of Deep Work. G'day, this is Ryan Park. I'm Batman. This is Ivan Davies from my town. I'm Andrea Burke from the Canadian National Women's Rugby Team. And Lucas Fickendee. This is Tate Fletcher, Cage Fighter. Listen to Mojo Radio Show, or I'll be coming to see you. Then we ask them the big questions. Oh, man, this is such a great question. You've actually landed right on the mark. That's a, another really good question. It's great talking to some clever dudes, frankly. I've gone probably a little bit more in-depth with you than, uh, than I have in the book. I've done, like, 500 interviews, but nobody asked me about this. <laughs> oh, wow. And sometimes we talk about darts. There we go. Can I tell you, Dina, Gary's favourite sport is darts. How athletic is that? I think it's uh, interesting that it's your favourite, but I won't be judgmental. (laughs) Look, it's the only sport that I know of where a prerequisite is a pint of beer and a cigarette. Come on, let's be honest. The Mojo Radio Show. We don't take ourselves too seriously. So you try throwing half a dozen darts in a row and just see how you go, Uh, my friend. But we hope you will. Welcome. I got my book. To the Mojo Radio Show. Hey, everybody, and welcome aboard the Big Red Bus. Call sign the Mojo Radio Show. If you are a regular listener, welcome back on board. You can take a seat towards the back of the bus. If you're listening for the first time, what's the show about? Well, essentially, we just try and find interesting people who we think have their mojo working somewhere in their world so we can chat to them, extract what they do really well apply it to our own world or perhaps just as importantly if you know somebody who's struggling with their own loss of mojo you can uh, fire them up a little bit before we start special thanks to our patreon supporters a uh, couple more patreon people got on board the bus this week brendan and michael good on you fellas we cannot thank you enough that keeps fuel keeps the diesel in the truck and keeps us going Thank you so much. That'd be Mick and Breno then, wouldn't it? Breno's. Breno's. <laughs> uh, welcome to the dulcet tones of our voiceover guy. AP's been a tad quiet this year, but AP, nice to have you in the booth. Uh, sorry, what was that? Hang on. I wasn't cans on. Yeah, I've been quiet lately, um, <clears throat> mainly due to um, my new fitness regime of um, long-distance cycling and marathon running. But apart from that, uh, yeah, good. Lola. Hello, boys. The beautiful Lola, our automated studio assistant. In fact, I had an email from someone during the week going, is Lola actually a real thing? And is Lola the world's first ever automated studio assistant? And I went affirmative or affirm, as they Mm -hmm. say in the business, on both counts. She almost wasn't with us this week. Why? Well, Liam, my 14-year-old, went off with his best mate on Saturday night and they went and saw Queen live here in Australia. And uh, leading up to this week, that's all I've heard around the house is Queen songs. Liam's just been in here going, Lola, play Another One Bites the Dust. Lola, play a Bohemian Rhapsody. Lola, play I Want to Break Free. He's just been going crazy. So he came home on Saturday night with a cap and a hoodie and all the rest of it. So I think my, my work as a father is complete. I've got a son who officially loves rock and roll. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm on the fence with Queen. Mm-hmm. I, when you look at Queen today, this is a little off ramp whilst we're here, but you look at Queen today, the drummer and Brian May are the only Queen members left. To me, it's almost the Adam Lambert show singing Queen songs. Uh, I don't know. Brian May on guitar, 
I, I don't know. I don't. I don't know that there's anyone else in the world that can do play Queen songs the way he plays them like that. I, I saw them on uh, on telly last night on that bushfire appeal thing, and he was pretty good. Pretty good. I don't know. I'm on the fence. I kept on looking at it, going, it's kind of, it's not Freddie. And he's not trying to be Freddie, mm. but I think it really, Adam Lambert is Adam Lambert singing Queen songs, singing the catalogue. And I just don't, I just don't feel as though it's Queen. I think the poster has it right. It's Adam Lambert with the guys from Queen. Well, I mean, that's it's still what a good show it, yeah. and everything else, but it's kind of, I don't know, it's not like ACDC where Brian Johnson is ACDC. Mm. I mean, that's a, it's a different vibe. There's only two of them. Two Depends of on the who four. you talk to. ACDC's never been the same since Brian Johnson took over either. So, you know, Bon Scott, as far as some people are concerned, is ACDC. So, you know, you can look at it in many ways, I guess. The, 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 the Mojo, Mojo Radio Show. Just a quick, quick mention before we start the show. A very big supporter of the Big Red Bus, we call the Mojo Radio Show, is Athletic Greens. This is not a plug for them, but they are and have been a great supporter of the team here. They've just been selected as the official daily supplement of the US cycling team who are getting ready for the 2020 Olympic Games in Tokyo. Wow. And with that certification... USA cycling members and, well, any professional athletes can confidently take the product knowing that it's the highest certification standards and it won't get picked up in the 270 substances banned <laughs> by major <laughs> athletic organisations. That would be an issue. Well, they don't run any swabs around the voiceover booth. Oh, I'll um, tell you what. But that's great, isn't it? I mean, that just goes isn't to show. Awesome? I mean, they're mates of ours. They've been really good. I just mm. thought that was worth mentioning because they're legit and yep. it's just nice to have a legit product helping us and supporting us through Patreon. It makes us look good. <laughs> and buying our uh, our outside broadcast group yeah. and uh, in a way reinforcing the fact that uh, the World Anti-Doping Association, WADA, has found nothing in the studio so far. So, um, so since Athletic Greens are now associated with the American Olympic cycling team and we're associated with Athletic Greens just through to the fact that they obviously love us and like to help us, does that mean that we can say we're on an Olympic team now? That would be a stretch looking at you and your Divinal's boob tube <laughs> right now. Robbo's Remarkable Facts. About time. Let's go. Well, Australia's been in the spotlight over the past few months with the world's attention turning to cl- the climate challenge and state of our planet and all that sort of stuff. One of the other big problems we face as a planet is plastic. And while it looks unsightly, it also seems it may be affecting our health. A study by the University of Newcastle here in Australia has shown that on average, every person around the world ingests 2,000 microplastic particles a week. That's five grams or about the weight of a credit card. These particles can originate from a variety of sources, including artificial fibres, microbeads found in some toothpastes, or bigger pieces of plastic which gradually break down into smaller pieces when they're thrown away and exposed to the elements. They make their way into our rivers and oceans and can be eaten by fish and other marine animals, ending up as part of the food chain. Microplastics have also been found in many everyday foods and drinks such as water, most importantly, beer, shellfish and salt. The largest source, though, 
is from drinking water, oddly enough, but not the type you'd think. A separate study this month found that Americans drink and breathe between 74,000 and 121,000 microplastic particles each year. Those who drink exclusively bottled water can add another 90,000 plastic particles to their yearly total. So my suggestion, go for the tap, not the bottle. Remarkable. It is. Isn't that terrible, though? This is Tate Fletcher, Cage Fighter. This is a Mojo Radio Show, or I'll be coming to see you. Our guest this week is Jen Pasteloff, who is the author of a book called On Being Human, a memoir of waking up, living real, and listening hard. And this... This is a story of an absolutely incredible journey. Jen runs retreats around the world, helping people heal, connect deeply and find peace within themselves in this complicated world. The work Jen does is a result of her own remarkable personal journey, which I'd heard before. And once I heard it, I really wanted to talk to her because this is a young lady who grew up believing that she was a bad person from the time she was a child. She lived with depression, she lived with anxiety, all at the same time she was losing her hearing, which is an extraordinary story. She kept all of this secret until there was a moment where she kind of changed, had a profound thought pattern, changed everything, became more open, more accepting, found more joy, and eventually that has led her to now sharing a story as a writer, a teacher, and a leader. So it's with great delight we welcome you to the show. Jen, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. So good to be here. When you meet people for the first time, Jen, and they ask you what you do, how do you like to reply? <laughs> how do I like to reply or how do I really reply in real life? <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a great question. Now... I reply, I'm a writer, but it took me a really long time to do that because of a story I held about myself that I wasn't a real writer. So, um, so when people ask me what I do, um, now I say, the first thing I asked you is, do you want me to reply with how I want to reply or how I really reply? (laughs) Um, and so nowadays I say I'm a writer and before I had a book in the world, I had a lot of stories in my mind that I call bullshit stories that I wasn't a real writer and I wasn't sure how to introduce myself. And so I, you know, I said, well, I lead retreats around the world that are, uh, connecting and sharing and singing. And I gave this long spiel because I didn't feel qualified to say I'm a writer or, or I felt that in some way I had to um, put myself in a box. And now I just say I'm a writer or um, a connector (laughs) or human. And I don't feel that I need to really even explain it. It's an interesting note, Jen, over the last couple of seasons, there has been this undercurrent or a theme that we seem to pop up a lot about identity. And even specifically with what you said, we had James Clear who wrote Atomic Habits on the show and he talked about even in how small habits then create an identity. And people can say, I do a bit of writing, which is different to I'm a writer. I do a bit of, I, uh, I, I run from time to time as opposed to I'm a runner. Exactly. And this identity can have a big impact on the habits. Why... What was the difference? What was the turning point where you, you, you were doing writing, 
but she didn't really believe. And the word you used was, I wasn't a real writer. What then gave you the confidence to change identity to say, I'm a writer? Like, where, where's, that, where's that inflection point that changes that belief in your mind? Well, this is something I talk about a lot in my workshops and in my book, actually. And I call, I call these things bullsh- bullshit stories. And so I had a deep, bullsh- ingrained bullshit story that I wasn't a real writer, namely because I never finished college and namely because I hadn't published anything. So once I had a book in the world, I thought, I'm a real writer. But then I realized that I always was, and it had, it had nothing to do whether or not I, I was able to say, oh, here's my book. Um, it was so much about what people thought of me. And I realized, you know, how much power I was giving to that. What do people think of me? Because often if you say, I'm a writer, or I'm an actor, or whatever it is, they'll say, oh, what have you written? Oh, what are you in? And I thought, well, I'm not able to you know, say anything. I'll say, well, I just write on blogs or I just write on social media. And once I had a book in the world, I was able to say, well, here I wrote this book. But ironically, it took me that to then also realize I didn't need that to say I was a writer. I I find this topic absolutely fascinating. And there's there's a fair bit I want to dig into because I want to go back to identity in a second. It's fair to say that the a, a lot of your story and your book, your backstory starts with the the time you, that time of your life where your dad died. Just set set that day up for us. What what was it like at that time? Yeah, well, it's it's ironic you're asking that because I'm in London right now, and I met my oldest friend in the world who I've known for forty years, um, who recently moved here from the states just randomly. And um, she lived in the house that we lived in with my father next door. And so she's one of the only people that actually knows my father. So it's surreal to even be, um, you know, asking that question or hearing that question. Um, It was, uh, I was so close to my dad, you know, it was, it was in a way, I suppose, looking back dysfunctional because I was, I was my dad's and my sister would belong to my mother. And so it was like this sort of these teams and then my dad died. And in my mind, it, it felt like, Oh, he left me with the enemy. Um, so it was, it was really, really hard. And then I never dealt with it. I just uh, locked my jaw and pretended nothing hurt. You, you were eight years old when your dad died. Take us to that that day and the last conversation you had with your dad. Well, the last conversation I had with my dad was he said, um, he told me to go across the street. There's a little store called the newsroom and to get him a hard pack of coals, which are cigarettes. So back in the 80s, you could do that. You could send your eight-year-old across the street to fetch cigarettes. And put it on your tab. These don't. These things don't exist anymore, you know. So my father smoked. My father smoked four packs a day of menthol cigarettes. That's you know over eighty cigarettes a day. That's crazy. Um, and I had just learned in school that you know how bad smoking was for you. And so 
he said, he asked me to go get him a pack of cigarettes. And I said, you promise you'd stop smoking. You always break your promises. I hate you. And he said, stop being bad. You're making me not feel good. <laughs> and that was it. And um, those were the last words. And so inevitably, as an eight-year-old, you know, I decided it was my fault that he died and I was bad. And so the bullshit story, a.k.a. belief I adopted, adapted and took on was I'm a bad person for the rest of my life until recently. Um, and I never, you know, I never worked through that. So I just put that in my body and walked through the world with that as, as if it was truth. How did you, it's, it, the reason I'm curious, and I heard you with Jonathan Field, and I, and I really love the way you speak about this with such you know, authenticity and honesty. There would be people here in this, Jen, who would have some sort of physical or mental scar that takes them back to something from their past, and they carry that story with them. How, how did you, has that scar ever mended for you, that wound? If it has, how did you go about doing it? How did you change that story? Because even today, hearing you talk about it, it sounds, it sounds emotional for you. How do you. How do you move on from that? You said only recently you came to grips with it. How do you do that? Well, that's how one does it, and that's how I did it. Now, <laughs> you know, in a perfect world, which, you know, we don't live in, I would have dealt with it when it happened. And I, I started to go to therapy, and, you know, I didn't continue with it, but I would have worked through it as a child and um, hopefully found ways, whether it was art therapy or, or talk therapy or dance or whatever, to deal with it as a eight, nine, ten-year-old um, writing, whatever it is, but I didn't. So how I dealt with it was I found other ways, albeit unhealthy ways. I starved myself. I, I did every possible thing you could imagine. And it wasn't until really um, I found yoga, but then really, really I found antidepressants. And then lastly, I started doing the work I'm doing now in the world, which is connecting with other human beings and really listening to other people and realizing that I had to metabolize my grief and that I also wanted to be congruent. So if I was teaching people to love themselves or to like themselves, and I damn well better also be doing that. So, you know, um, for me, it wasn't easy. I don't think it is for anyone, certainly, but I pray. And, and, the, and what I want most in the world is that people deal with grief right when it happens and then for the rest of their lives. So they don't wait 30 years. <laughs> There's something that you said that I was a bit curious about. You said that at the time you knew or there was a time when you knew you had the problem, but you actually didn't want to let it go. Why, why is that? Why were you Absolutely. but you wouldn't let it? Why? Why? Because it, it, you know, back to that question you asked earlier was my identity. And so, for example, it made me feel special. So if I was in a room, this is when I was severely anorexic, you know, I almost died. I didn't get my menstrual cycle for four years. It was just, I mean, my brain, I don't even know how I functioned. And 
but I felt special. So I would be in a room and I would be like the sickest looking one. And that made me feel like I was worth something and I stood out. And so it was just, you know, weird dichotomy of wanting to die and disappear yet also wanting to be the most special. So I knew, and I've also been, I've always been very self-aware. I feel like I was born 40 years old. You know, I came out of the womb, (laughs) an adult. Um, I've always been very aware of things and yet that doesn't always change them, which is why in the work I do now, my biggest question is now what? Because knowing something isn't enough. No, Going, okay, well, I have an eating disorder. Okay, I'm an alcoholic. Or okay, you know, I, I, I do this to alienate people, whatever it is. It's like, okay, well, now what are you going to do about it? And I wasn't ready. I was not ready to let go of that identity. And, um, and I didn't want to. So it's like, it really is the truest true that you, you can't force anyone to do anything until they're ready. Is, is part of it, Jen something I've heard you talk about, you said that it wasn't until you felt gotten and the word you used was what saved you was when you felt gotten. What's it feel like when someone gets you? Because you said you kind of felt a bit alienated, but then even being anorexic in a room, you felt special. When someone actually gets you and you feel gotten, what, what is that like? How do we do it? How do we know we're helping somebody with that? Well, you know, I just got that tattoo on my arm, actual permanent tattoo. I got you. But I think it's it's personal. It looks different, you know, to anyone. Sometimes I got you is someone um, bringing a casserole over after you just had a baby or someone died. Some, sometimes someone um, being gotten is knowing that someone has your back. Sometimes I got you as someone, you know, you calling them because you have a flat tire and they come right away. Sometimes I got you is someone just resting their hand on your shoulder. Sometimes I, I being gotten is someone just listening without trying to interrupt or wor- worrying about what they're going to say. Just, just less bearing witness. You know, it looks, it can look any way, like just like love can, but um, there's nothing like it. It's a, nothing like, the feeling of knowing someone has your back or being gotten or being listening, listened to or heard or seen. Say you are walking down the street and you pass a man who's wearing polo Ralph Lauren and you get a good whiff of it. What do you think, what memory do you think that would bring back for you? Well, that uh, brings me back to my dad, but I'm a sucker. I mean, I see any bearded man. I'm like, my father. (laughs) Um, Yeah, you know, uh, so my father wore, he worked in in a store that sold um, Ralph Lauren polo. And so that brand always brings an association to him. But the smell, predominantly smell, is so powerful. Music too, you know. If I hear like a Hall and Oates song or this random song from the movie, the movie Tootsie that I saw with my father, but smell is very powerful. It remind me of my father. And if he's, you know, a friendly looking man, I'll say, "Hi, my dad used to wear that." But I don't know. It it definitely, um, yeah. I have a an issue. I just chat with people, <laughs> and I wouldn't change it for the world. 
you just talked about listening to Hall and Oates, and we'll get on to Journey in a minute. Um, <laughs> but but hearing your hearing loss is a I find a, a fascinating part of your journey and having to deal with it, but then also the lessons it's taught you. And you said that you started to lose. You had very bad tinnitus when you were six or seven years old, which I, I can't even imagine at that young age what it would be like to have very bad ringing in your ears all the time. So you you had to sit at the very front of the room with your teachers, but the teachers were thinking that you weren't paying attention. That made you feel broken. And I just, what, I, what I'm fascinated by, Jen, is that that was a true medical condition where you couldn't hear, you had this ring in your ears and you felt broken. I just wonder whether today we are breaking people by truly not listening to them. It's hilarious because I didn't actually hear the last sentence you said. You said, I wonder today if... I wonder today if the same principle is if we are breaking children and breaking those around us because we actually are not listening to them because we're so distracted. Such a good question. Wow. Wow. Um, It makes me feel a little bit of shame because I am on my phone a lot. And, but I think probably, yes, you're right. And it's also, you know, it's, it's, it's painful to hear you bring it up because my son is three, he's downstairs. And I think, Oh, like if he heard what I, if he had this, it's torture. It truly is. When I take my hearing aids out, it's torture. And if he actually said out loud, mommy, make it go away, mommy, make it go away. And I couldn't. And for me, when I was little and I wrote about this in the book, but I didn't know that what I, what I heard in my ears was different. And so I just tried to mimic it by making a sound and people made fun of me for it. So I shut up about it and I never said anything until I got old enough to understand that not everyone had it. And it was a condition, if you want to call it. And, uh, I do think though, I do think we're so distracted now and I, I, it's a wake-up call to hear you say that. I don't want to be. And it's hard. It's hard when you work for yourself and you don't have a lot of, for me, I don't have a lot of boundaries or or parameters because I work for myself. So there's no nine to five, you know, so I'm on the phone or what have you. But I am very conscious of looking at my son always and uh, when he talks. Because as much as I couldn't hear, but I also never felt heard as a child. So it's a very interesting and predominant theme in my life. What's curious about this is that it took you a long time for you to actually say, I can't hear you. How did it feel when you actually could say it to people? Because you said it helped you deal with the shame when you could actually say, I can't hear you. How did that feel when you could, for the first time, I wish I had adequate words to tell you how amazing it feels because I it's it's really only in the last very little while. I mean, even in the last year where I've been so forthright with it. And, you know, the truth is it makes me feel really powerful and also um, proud of myself and also um, 
don't know. It just feels really great. For so long, I was so ashamed and I suffered and I struggled because I couldn't hear. And then I felt left out and I would isolate. And now right up front, I'll just say, by the way, I'm deaf without my hearing aids. I read lips. So if it seems like I'm tuning out, I'm not. I just can't hear. And I say that right off the bat without any judgment or shame toward myself. And that's that. So it's right there. It's not an issue. It's not a, it's not a thing. It's not a story that people can make up. Um, it did take me a long time, and I really want to write a, an essay about denial because people are sort of fascinated by that, which fascinates me because I think, have you never experienced denial? And if you haven't, you're so lucky. You know, my whole life has been about denial. When my father died, I just denied I felt anything. Just deny, deny. And so, you know, especially after someone's read my book and they and they can't understand how I denied my hearing loss, I think it's sort of fascinating because um, it's a survival mechanism. Has it taught you compassion, Jen? Because I would imagine that when you can finally say it, you could probably see beyond the facade that many of us carry with this denial. Has it made you a more compassionate person because you just don't know what's going on with somebody? I think you asked me about, about compassion. Yeah. Yeah. So listeners, I am, I'm deaf. And so combine it with, you know, being on Skype and accents Accents and stuff. stuff, (laughs) Um, But that's a beautiful and ironic thing. If you want to think about that, my hearing loss, you know, one of the greatest losses of my life has been the greatest gift because I understand that people are going through things that we can't see. So many times people judge me and I get it. I, I get it. I'm not um, blind to it, you know, in a coffee shop or something. If they ask me my name, I don't hear. And they ask me again in a tone with, which suggests that I just wasn't paying attention or I'm an airhead. And, um, or, you know, I don't present as someone who is deaf. And so people get irritated or make an assumption about me. And so I understand, you know, perhaps more than anyone that people have things going on that we know nothing about. So I do my best to have empathy and compassion considering that. And also just from the loss of losing my father and, and my sister has a son with um, a, gen- a fatal genetic disorder. So there have been many things that have enabled me to also develop this compassion muscle. Incredibly. With this hearing loss, you talked about being in a coffee shop and it being noisy. Incredibly, for 14-something years, you worked as a waitress in a restaurant with these hearing challenges, taking orders above the hustle and bustle of a very popular restaurant. How, How did you do that? How did you take orders and hear people with your hearing loss when a lot of times people would not have even been looking at you? Well, it wasn't until recently that I realized, someone pointed it out actually in a podcast, that that is where I learned how to read lips so wonderfully because I had to. Again, back to the survival. Um, So I always squatted down so I could see the person's mouth. And so, you know, I always just, tricked myself into into it being like well I'm just this, I'm so personable and, and I'm such a connector I need to be in close but really it was oh I, I mm. don't know what they're saying and constantly I attributed it to 
the acoustics because the ceilings were, it was a loud restaurant. But the second part of the answer is my hearing loss was not as profound 15 years ago. It's just, you know, keeps getting worse. So the way it is now, it was not this bad when I was just starting there at 23. Every, you know, every year it just kept getting worse. But I really can't think of a better way if I was learning to read lips than to do it like that. Because I had to. It's the only way I would get the order. Yeah. <laughs> the tip. <laughs> Waiting tables, you said, and that was a long time, it was over a decade, you said you stopped writing and you stopped creating and you said you felt dead inside. Do you, do you hear people at your yoga retreats or people you meet through your book, do you meet people who are too busy to actually create and actually now are feeling a bit dead inside because they're doing and not creating? All the time. All the time. And I wish that I could go back to the me of then and remind myself that I'm the same person, that my worth wasn't my worth wasn't dictated by my job, that I wasn't a bad person, that I could write even though I didn't have a college degree. And yeah, I see it all the time. And so What's so wonderful about the workshops and retreats that I lead is that, you know, there's these communities and these people get up and they share out loud and people listen to them and clap and cry and nod and laugh and hug them and they feel seen and heard. And it gives them this sense of, oh, I can do something. I could do anything. And I never had that really back then. Like I suspect a lot of people who wait on tables you you actually said you wanted to be an artist. Have you done that, Jen? Do you now, as part of your identity, you say, I'm a writer. Do you feel as though today you can say you've become an artist? Absolutely. I have just so much more confidence now, and a lot of that has come with years on the planet, and I wouldn't trade that for anything. You know, there's gray hairs and there's things that are, you know, oh, frustrating about getting older. My hearing's getting worse, but... The sense of confidence I have in who I am and realizing that it has little to do with my uh, quote-unquote production. And for all of us, you know, one of my signature exercises is called Give Yourself a Bleeping Medal. And I want us all to give ourselves a medal for anything and everything because no one else is going to do it. And I spent my whole life waiting for someone else to do it for me. And so the truth is now I could say when someone says, well, what do you do? I could say anything I want. I mean, I'm not going to say I'm a brain surgeon, but I mean, it doesn't matter. Also, I hate that question. It's, it's a very, I live in Los Angeles. That's a very LA question. Um, you know, whether a lot, everyone's making a movie or in the movie business. And so they sum you up very quickly. And I was so used to that working in this Hollywood restaurant. What do you do? And it was immediately like, oh, what am I worth? I have to quickly, you know. And now I just realize that's such, it's so not true. Which is why, which is why I always say, um, you know, when I get to the end of my life and I ask one final, what have I done? Let my answer be, I have done love. Because really, that's everything. Okay. So based on that question, let me ask you a question about this. James Lipton, who hosts 
inside the actor's studio, which everybody can find online easily, mm-hmm. interviews the great living actors, directors, producers of our time. Wonderful, wonderful interviewer with the research the guy does is insane. The last question James Lipton always asks is this, which ties back to what you just said. If heaven exists, what would you... I know it. I knew you were going to ask me that. Yeah, <laughs> if heaven exists. Well, because I've watched it a lot. It's good, Don't forget, I used to pretend to be an actress. So. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so if heaven exists, what is what is it? What would you like God to say when you arrive at the pearly gates? I've been waiting for you. <laughs> Your father's just back there. He's the one smoking a cigarette. We've poured you a glass of wine. He's waiting in the library. There's a ton of books. Make yourself at home. And then he's going to say, she, it's a she. she. Okay, she's yeah. going to say, it's going to be okay. Yeah, she's going to say, it's going to be okay. And then she's going to say, I got you. So you walk, you get entry to the pearly gates. She sees your new tattoo and goes, yeah, I got you. You're good. You're good to go. Yeah. Say you walk up to your dad, he's got a menthol in his hand. You walk up to your dad. What would be the first question you would ask your dad at that moment? Oh, God. All right. Hold on. (laughs) Wasn't prepared for this one. It's interesting because as much as I feel like I've let go of all my anger, of course, the first thing when you ask that question, the first thing I want to say is something like, (laughs) what the fuck? (laughs) Because ultimately, ultimately my dad died from drugs. Um, So uh, the first thing I want to say to him or I want him to say to me is just, I love you. I'm proud of you. Because hopefully by then I'll just, you know, be over any (laughs) residue anger. Uh, Got a feeling he's probably saying it right now, to be honest with you, Jim, with the work you're doing. Hey, um, to take an off-ramp here, off the highway, something I heard you say, which I found really, really interesting. You've got a friend who is in the band Snow Patrol, and you made the comment that when you are watching them play, that to you is a form of yoga. Just explain that for me. Yeah, so it's funny because I'm going to see them tomorrow night here in London at um, Royal Albert Hall. He's my best friend, um, guitar player. So, and I've had that experience before um, a couple times with musicians, this amazing Italian musician named Ludovico Annaudi, who I love, and also Ray LaMontagne, maybe 10 or 15 years ago. And I've also had it with theater or actors, but it's when you're watching someone do what it feels like they were born to do, or they're just perfectly in sync with spirit, or if you want to call it God or whatever it is, that feels like yoga, union, communion. So it doesn't have to be about, you know, down dogs, but um, it's so holy and spiritual and in connection with everything. So yeah, I I do feel that way when I when I see them perform. Just on yoga for a second, you said that you got drawn to yoga. Yoga has been part of your journey, part of your healing. But you said I was just really good at it. Why? Why? Because it's it's really a strange thing to hear people say. Yeah, yeah. No, I was actually really good at that. 
Why? What made you so good at yoga? No. <laughs> no, 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 no. You're, I, well, I don't know. You misread a quote. I always joke and I say I'm not very good at it. <laughs> and I like, it's a joke because I'm pretty terrible, but I'm a really good teacher. I mean, but like I'm, I can't do a handstand in the middle of the room. I'm not um, flexible, really. I'm just a really good teacher and and I loved it, but I wasn't, mm. and I use it in the air quotes because there's no such thing as being good at it. But I, I, I say it as a, as a way to point to the fact that that's bullshit. The idea of being good at something. Um, cause you know, if you just looked at me in a room full of people doing yoga, you would never go, Oh, that's just really well-known yoga teacher. Um, that's hilarious that you re- that you heard it wrong. I always say I'm not good at it. <laughs> it must um, be in the teaching part then. You must have said I'm good at teaching yoga. I really am because because I'm a good teacher. I'm a good and I've always that's one of the things I'm good at in life. And I always since I was a child thought I would be a teacher. So I'm good at teaching yoga. That does not mean that I'm good at actually demonstrating the poses or doing them. <laughs> Um, no, 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 not at all. No, certainly no. I mean, anytime I have to do like a kind of yoga thing, I have someone else model for me or do it. I'm, um, I don't even call myself a yoga teacher anymore. So no, um, I love it, but I don't, that's not my, you know, sole identity. And I, and I, I'm certainly not the poster child for, um, flexibility or strength. So have you almost created a new category in yoga? Because hearing you at the front of a class, you do a lot of teaching, not of yoga, but just stuff, things you're thinking about, things you are writing about, things you are pondering. And you talk very, like you're talking with the person as if you are thinking it through as opposed to a structured RPM session, which is precise word for word. Is that almost kind of the the basis of your retreats where you've created this, this own category for yourself where it's not yoga and it's not teaching, but it's kind of this blend that's Jen's own thing? Again, I'm, I'm struggling to hear, but I think... I absolutely do think I created a new category, if you want to call it as something I made up. And now other people do it. But, you know, 10 years ago, whenever it was, I started it. And it's not like I can, you know, create a patent on it. But I used um, body movement and yoga as a way in and as a way to get people to let down their armor and to get more into their body and listen to their cerebral mind. But you know, I did a workshop here in London a couple of days ago and there's people, there's a couple of people that sat in chairs. There's a, there's many people who had never done yoga. And so it's, it's sort of beside the point now. I still have them, they're on their mats because it creates an ease as opposed to sitting in chairs, you know, but I do think I created something new and that's exciting. How do you, you said one of your strengths is making people feel safe. So apart from having the strength of being a, being a good listener, you said you, you have this ability to ensure that someone feels safe. How do you do that? How, is there a, 
Tell us the thinking behind truly making somebody feel safe, because that's that's something today where I think a lot of kids, a lot of people don't feel safe. I don't know the answer to that, you know, um, and and let's be clear. I'm sure there are some people that would say, no way, she didn't make me feel safe. But, but you know, over the years as a whole, that's, I know, I know with the deepest knowing in me, that's one of my gifts. And I think, you know, I think some of it's just a born something I was born with. I think some of it is my willingness to be so human and open and vulnerable and myself in front of people that they sort of feel no choice but to do the same. And no matter what, especially actually here in London, people are so fascinated by my openness just with how I live or, or anything, you know? And um, when you're that way or when you're... <sighs> open or you're sharing your gifts or even when you're being silly, it really allows other people to do the same. And I think some of it is just the inexplicable part of my personality or soul or whatever you want to call it. Um, I think, you know, all my life I struggled with feeling safe, losing my dad so young. And so my intention began to be to make people feel safe. So I wanted to be that in the world. I wanted to be, it's going to be okay. I wanted to be that for people. It's going to be okay. When they, when they were around me, they felt that. If I gave you five post-it notes, immediately what would you do with those five post-it notes? Well, are they blank? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I'm a big fan of post-it notes. If you gave me five post-it notes, I'd write, one of them I'd give back to you. I'd write down five beautiful things about you and I'd give it back to you. One of them I'd write down um, five beautiful things about my day and I'd stick it on my mirror. One of them I'd write down what I wanted for myself and I'd stick it somewhere on my fridge or somewhere so I'd see it and I'd remind myself of it. One, I'd write what I want to the same thing, what I want to create for myself, but I'd give it to someone to hold for me, to hold space for me, to want that for me. I'd give it to you. And then the last one, I'd give myself a medal <laughs> and I'd write down all the things, <laughs> you know, like, and, uh, and I, and I'd look at it when I needed to remember that I'm not a piece of crap, you know? <laughs> you talked about growing up in, in kind of, a, I think the word you used was a land of lack. You grew up in a land of lack. Are you now at a point, Jen, in your life that you you know you deserve good things? That's a great question. I talked about it at my workshop on Saturday. I talked about how insidious bullshit stories are. And I said, for example, something can go wrong for me, whatever it is, even something really small. And I'll get upset and I'll say something like, see, nothing ever works out for me. And I'll believe that. Because it's like this old, old bullshit story wiring. So I do believe, I do believe now that I deserve and that I'm worthy. But I'm not immune to the bullshit stories, especially when I'm tired or stressed out or whatever it is. But a, a majority of the time, I finally believe it. I wish it didn't take me until my 40s, but hey, at least I'm not dead. <laughs> 
On your retreats, you have been known to have people get up, in case, some cases strip off, but dance ridiculously to Don't Stop Believing. Why, why does that song resonate so much with you? A couple of reasons. One is years ago, I started something called karaoke yoga, which is as ridiculous as it sounds. And it's just, it's just good fun. And that was one of the staple songs because that's one of those songs that if you play it, everybody knows. I don't care if the people are 80 or 15 and it's really weird. They just all know it. And there's not that many songs like that. If you think about it. Um, and the message is so great. And so when I, when I, when I do it, I always tie it in. Every song I play, I tie into. So, like, my stupid joke I always say is, okay, you guys, you know, you got to have a mantra. And, and this was mine, and these guys stole it from me in the 70s, and it was so <laughs> rude of them. But it's, it's, hold on, you'll know it. And then I play the song, and everyone laughs, and it's just silly. But everybody knows the song, and it's invigorating, and it's such a good message. Don't stop believing. The rest of the words, whatever, but don't stop believing. <laughs> you know, it all boils down to that. But it gets people lit up. It gets people singing. It gets people dorky and free, and that's what I want. That's what we all want, ultimately, even if you don't realize it, is to be more free. That could be a sign for the studio wall, Robbo, a new one. Everybody wants to be dorky and free. Starship. I think so, yeah. Well, it's interesting It's interesting that uh, that, that song made it onto the Explosive Hits compilation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Jen, just to wrap this up, whilst we are on music, it would be remiss of me to say that your message not only resonates with people of all generations all over the world, but also some people who are seemingly very successful but can obviously see something in your message that can help them. Pink, rock legend, yeah, actually wrote to you <laughs> to say, dig your work. Tell us about that. <laughs> I love her. Pink's, um, someone sent me a message and said, um, Snow Patrol and Pink follow you on Instagram. And I said, well, I know Snow Patrol does. He's my best friend, but Pink doesn't. And I looked and she did. So I followed her back. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't following her. And and then I sent her a couple messages and we developed a friendship on Instagram. I don't know how she was following me, but she was. And then I finally went to see her show and it blew my mind. She's the real deal. I mean, she really is... Um, you know, she's who to, who I would want to be if I was a rock star. <laughs> so, <laughs> soul sister, I guess, yeah. Okay, Robbo, it would be remiss of us not to go out with Jen's favourite pink track. Name it. Oh, Hurts to be Human. Oh, really? Well, <sighs> there's so many, but that's the most recent one, and I think, of course, I'm biased because... Yeah. Um, being human hurts to be human. Yeah. I also love Walk Me Home. I, I don't, um, God, there's so many. It would be really hard for me to pick just one, but hurts to be human because also my book is sitting right in front of me. I don't know why. I met my friends and it was sitting here. But yeah, hurts to be human right now. Hurts to be human. God, it hurts. 
wife have something have some sort of synergy because uh every saturday night she plays me you in your hand i love it <laughs> i love Simpatico. it i really want to come there so uh, let's invite me and i'll be there you're invited uh and you would also be invited to join us uh, at bondi beach and record an interview at the on, on the beach with some fish and chips <laughs> and, and a glass of wine how does that sound let's do it oh, yeah, okay. Beautiful. It sounds great. Well, let us let us know when Cuz you... I'm in London right now with a glass of wine. <laughs> um, I really would love to. Let us know when you're heading down under. We'll set it up. So we actually have started recording with international guests to our shores, Jen. So we are endeavoring to ensure that guests that we love speaking to when they do come to Australia, we have bought an outside broadcast that'll set up and we set up on the promenade right in front of the Bondi Surf Lifesaving Tower and we record live. So, Is that where you live? We live in Sydney, yeah. I've never been to Australia. Oh, you're missing out. I know. I know. I, I mean, I, I really want to come. I just I have to figure out a way to, you know, kind of tie work into it. That seems to be everybody's problem. Yeah. Surely there's got to be some work for you. If you can go to Italy and France and London and America doing your workshops, there's got to be a way. I know we're down under, but we do have yoga down here. I know. (laughs) I did a retreat in Bali in 2012 and I've always wanted to come back and I thought if I did that, I would do Australia. You know what I mean? I'd hop over, but um, I definitely want to come back. And now my son's three, so we could figure out the flight and... I would love to. Well, your son can play with my kids while we do the interview because I've got I've got uh, five, three, and one. So there you go. There's some synergy. They can they Perfect. can all have a play date Perfect. on the beach while we do some serious talking. Oh yeah, so serious, very serious. Jen, this has been fantastic. I think one of the things that we have found that podcasting brings is the opportunity to hook up with really cool people who have got a message who are authentic because. Back in the day when we worked in radio, we didn't have that forum to be able to spend an hour with somebody. But you are the sort of person I would love to sit down with a beer or a cup of coffee and just chat some more. Because I would love your story it. I would really love it. And and I just, I really do want to apologize because I have been wanting to chat with you for so long. And I have to be honest, I don't have an assistant. And so it wasn't until my publicist handled it, but I just, I get so... Um, underwater and I can't keep up and so it wasn't personal I just I forgot and I you know until she reminded me and was like I booked this for you I said great (laughs) (laughs) well I I mean the truth is I need an assistant because I just can't I I just can't that's there's Mm. no other I just can't keep up with you know with things I say yes to and then I don't I forget or whatever it is, you know, so it was helpful <laughs> for me. I mean, I had to come to London apparently to do it, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Jen, I find you such a beautiful person inside and out. I think the Likewise. work you're doing, the book. Likewise. It's just, Thank you. It's just really cool. How, for people who want to check you out, go to a retreat, get the book, chat some more to you, where's, where's the hub for Jen? The, you know, where I am the most is Instagram, Jen Pastelov. 
otherwise my website, jenniferpastelop.com. And I have a lot of really cool things coming up. But if you find me on Instagram, that's where I tend to be the most. That's the social media I prefer the most. And if you go and sign up for my newsletter that I never send out, but I'll try to <laughs> on my website. <laughs> but but sign, otherwise, yeah. But sign up anyway. <laughs> Thank you for listening, everybody, for taking the time. It was such an honor. I cannot wait to come visit you all in Australia. The Mojo Radio Show. We get to connect with some just, I mean, the thing I love about podcasts, whether it be Ryan Munsey or Logan or Jay Bertman, whoever it may be, we get to connect with some truly outstanding people. And just, I mean, you're in the audio game and sound is or should be important to you. But imagine working in a noisy Manhattan restaurant, taking orders, all the distractions, People who aren't even looking at you ordering, and at the same time, you're deaf. (laughs) I just find that absolutely mind-blowing that she taught herself to lip-read. Now, she didn't have a choice. I mean, she adapted to her situation. But when you look at someone who was deaf, working in a cafe to survive, who learned to lip-read, I think any of us with the things we want to do, I go what's your excuse? <laughs> and, then, and then the other thing I find, it even from a young age, she carried this story of self-belief and she believed that she was a bad person. And I think over the last couple of years through this, the conversations with guests about identity and the conversations I have with people, when you start to understand their backstory, people are carrying these stories with them for years and years that hold us back. They create barriers. They cause deep harm, resentment, depression, worst case, a feeling of not being worthy. And I just think these stories are so powerful to, to demonstrate that the, the stories we carry that maybe need some digging to bring them out, create all the beliefs we have. And those beliefs then demonstrate themselves in behaviors and eventually our actions. But it all traces back to this whole thing which started with Dr. Simon Marshall, the sports psychologist from Braveheart Coaching years ago, Todd Herman, Alter Ego. And we, we talk a lot, it all comes back to this identity and stories we tell ourselves. And I think Jen's just absolutely wonderful with what she's dealt with and how she's now helping others change their story. I think she's she's a gift. Yeah. There's plenty of inspirational people out there, isn't there? That I mean, I can't imagine just hearing you telling that story again about her working in the restaurant, you know, people who don't realize that you're deaf, you know, and you're walking away and they yell over their shoulder, hey, can you bring us back a glass of water when you come or something? I mean, just dealing with that alone would be difficult, I can imagine, but good on her. She's amazing. The Mojo Radio Show. Pop quiz, hot shot. Pop quiz, hot shot. Go. What do Billy Joel, Jimi Hendrix, and girl of the moment, Billie Eilish, all have in common? What do they all have in common? I would say... I'll give you a hint. It's got to do with their songwriting. Songwriting. They all use pen and paper. (laughs) Close. Not bad. They're just a few of the great composers, past and present, who have a condition called synesthesia. Do you know what that is? No. Okay. Synesthesia is a condition that affects people in different ways, but to put it simply, it combines senses. So some people taste sounds, others see letters and numbers as colours, some people even see smells. Now, it affects around 4% of the population, and artists like Billy Joel, Jimi Hendrix, Lord, Billie Eilish, 
all have it in a form known as chromesthesia. This means that they see chords and music as colours. Billie Eilish explains it like this. Everything that I make, I already am thinking of what colour it is and what texture it is and what day of the week it is and what number it is and what shape. In itself, it's kind of fascinating, right? But it also made me think about how colour can help us in our learning after talking about learning and exercise bikes last week. So it turns out that there are a few key colours. Green can promote restfulness and calm and improve efficiency and focus. Orange is apparently a good mood lifter. In fact, some theorists argue that an environment with lots of orange increases the oxygen supply to the brain and stimulates mental activity while simultaneously loosening people's inhibitions. And finally, blue, which seems like it'd be a good one for you, some research suggests that people with highly intellectual work, which requires a high cognitive load, for instance, programmers, academics, radio hosts, blah, 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 are more productive in a blue environment. Here's the interesting thing, though. Blue is best used for learning situations which are challenging. And things like blue paper, blue ink or blue highlighters can be used to help improve reading comprehension. So, I mean, I find it fascinating. Have you heard of this? Do you know of any other colours? No, no, I don't. It's kind of interesting, though, isn't it? I mean, how colours can just, you know, make us change what's going on. But you've probably noticed that I've been doing a bit of painting here in the studio. I've put blue over there for you on your side of the console for question writing, orange here for me to help take care of the creative stuff, and pink in the voice booth for AP. Why why pink? Why pink? <laughs> well, there's a bit of a story to it. He asked me for burgundy, so I painted the booth purple, but it turns out he wasn't talking about colours. He muttered something about a liquid lunch and grumbled his way out of the studio, so I just went with pink. <laughs> all right, so uh, with all that, what colour are you got for our play-out song? Well, okay, so Lola, I need three songs, but we're going to break the rules here a little bit. I, n- I need a song from an artist who has chromesthesia, but I want something contemporary this week and I want it to invoke the colour orange so we leave everybody invigorated in a good mood. What have you got? How's this one? I'm that bad type, make your mama sad type, make your girlfriend mad type, might seduce your dad type. I'm the bad guy. Duh. Okay, Billie Eilish, bad guy? Mmm pretty popular at the moment and there's a whole other lesson in rock about the creativity behind that song but I'm not sure it's a feel-good song what else you got oh Gaz there you go one for you Lady Gaga probably not though what do you reckon the Gaga yeah I reckon there's one better one out there one last chance one last shot Lola what do you got I reckon that's pretty good. We're out.
Produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peter speaking. See you next time.